from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. morning and welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics coming to you live from the Wharton School, Huntsman Hall, Sirius XM Studios here facing on to beautiful Locust Walk on a picture perfect spring day. Finally, my God, thank you. Finally, spring is here in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. You just jinxed it. You know that, right? Yeah, that's the way it works. That doesn't work. This is Cade Massey hosting this morning <laughs> with my buddies, Adi Weiner, Shane Jensen. We are going to be here for the next two hours. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10. Talking sports analytics, you can jump into the conversation. We'd love it if you would. Give us a ring, one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. You can also email us, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Businessradio at SiriusXM.com. We pick up those emails during the show live, really. We do that sometimes, and especially when we're replayed. We're replayed about five times over the course of the week. You can uh, you can drop us a note if you're listening to one of those replays. If it's 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 eight a.m. on the East Coast, we're live. You can give us a ring. You can also follow us. We're now um, pushing a little Twitter account for the first time in a while. It is uh, the handle there is at W Moneyball at W Moneyball. We get on there occasionally, um, building a little community. Would love to have you there as well. All right, fellas, we are in for the next two hours. We've got guests coming up at the bottom of this hour, at the top of the next hour, as usual. But we've got open lines this half hour. Again, this is Cade, Adi, and Shane. Eric is out doing Eric things, I believe. We're told he'll be back with us next week for a while, which would be great. I don't remember what that guy looks like, either. man. It's going to be such a treat. And I'm going to be out for two weeks. So I do have a big memory him. of what he sounds like, though. That, that, that That's like the last thing to leave, I think. Yeah, that's sound. right. That's right. Um, so what has caught your eye in the world of sports in the last week since we last convened? Well, Shane wants to talk football. We'll, I we'll do. have to lay that I off do. a little bit. I mean, you know, we're only like three weeks away from the draft. So for me, exactly. It's, and the draft is going to be in you're Philadelphia. Doing it. You're doing it. You're the converging is, on football. I can't help it. It's like a train. <laughs> well, it is exciting that I, I, I somehow missed the fact that the draft is going to be in Philadelphia. Yeah. And, and Don't you remember more, that? And it's going to be outdoors. More, yeah. Which on, is, on the Museum Parkway. Yeah. And uh, I think that's going to be a fantastic show. Isn't it great? And uh, if we have any luck, if Matt Johnson's actually good at his job, we're going to have a we're going to oh, have a special. Oh, we'll do a, no we'll do a special though. out on the on the on the draft. Um, and our friends in New York will probably support that. I know the dean's office will support it. But the thing is, Philadelphia also hosted the first ever NFL draft in like 1936 or whatever. Well, that's a bit of trivia that most yeah, of us don't have in their that? back pockets. At the Ritz, apparently, huh. Philadelphia. So it's coming back home. The draft is coming back home this spring. Three weeks from tomorrow. But that's not what has caught my eye. Oh, no. Audie, no. I'm so surprised. Well, it's not it's always not. about you, just for the record. And no, because we know it's actually about <laughs> you. So we know we can't take it away. <laughs> the, the main thing Boy, is... Boy, that is like kindergarten language. Not, not about, it? It's not about Cade. That much we know. <laughs> that, that's clear. <laughs> that's always been clear. So we're going to waffle back and forth between basketball and baseball, or we're just going to ignore Audie, baseball? you just today. go. Just quit complaining and go whatever yeah, direction I mean, you want to go. So I'm, I'm now into full-on baseball mode, which means that in the evening... I put on the baseball in the background. The typically. baseball, yeah. The baseball because it's more than baseball? one. It's more than one game that goes at the same time. <laughs> Is that so, right? Yeah. Well, the MLB really? TV you can watch all of them except for so, the local markets, which. I wonder what the the information equivalency of baseball games to football games is, or like in terms baseball of baseball rate. I think yeah, the term like, you're talking about are, are, yeah. are uh, information. I think you could capacity. watch like eight baseball games, and and it conveys about the same amount of information as watching a real. Well, I mean, we know game. this because uh, we actually have some measure of this at least because. Um, 
you know, when when MLB, uh, you know, Audie mentioned MLB TV, where you can watch every single game, no advertisement here or anything, uh, but. <laughs> Um, you they actually put condensed games on after the fact. So yeah, I mean, like if you yeah. if you wa- want to watch the game the next day, you can watch the game essentially with all the sort of just play, 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 play. How long does it take? Twenty seven minutes. Like, oh come on! This is a guy. The football is a game no, with so, I, the I amount of action. Condensed, is, is I love is, condensed football games. Con- condensed football is perfect. No, it's perfect it, because most of the football is just walking around. It, it, entirely, it takes deep. literally six minutes per game Get for out. a baseball game. Yeah. Six minutes, and it shows you every every hit, every walk. Yeah, yeah. Uh, every, the fantastic. outcome of every at bat is it, about oh, it's, six. It's, games. O- it's only at bat outcomes. It's per at bat. That's right. I mean, they don't show you every pitch. It's right. Like they're, they're cutting out the intermediary pitches. Uh, yeah. They're they're just basically showing you pitches that or ha- something that is, happened. That's, well, that's well, doing real violence to this. That's sport violence. There. But listen, you can take that to the limit, and you can give you know fraction of a second to every actual outcome, and you can sum up any game. Into well, a, I mean, no, I'll, I'll, just, just for a comparison, when, when you buy a Super Bowl DVD, which I do a lot. Because my team wins it a lot. Um, <laughs> when you buy a Super Bowl DVD, they usually give you not only the sort of you know the the, the full season show. They often give you the condensed version of the Super Bowl as well, where they've cut out all the ads and, and yeah. all the intermediary time. Still takes that's about pretty... forty minutes. Oh, really? But that's a decision, Shane. That's not reality. That's because they want you to watch it for forty minutes. I mean, there's only I, sixteen no, you, games. You, you, so. here's, here's, you clearly want to fight me on this. I do but because I, you don't but, have. You're not making a point. You're just making. You're just trying to. I think that the point to is to rabble made. rouse. The, That's all you're doing. A, a baseball game can be. Uh, I mean, it, pot, it, I, I feel like it's directly related to Kate's question. A baseball game can be reduced down to about six or seven minutes, and a uh, and a football game, at least the Super Bowl, can be reduced from sixty minutes down to about forty minutes. Okay, so, so I don't really believe either of those numbers, but well, I think okay. it's a reasonable question to ask. I think so too, but I mean, like you know, and I mean, yes, you can argue about whether that's the most accurate, uh, you know, I mean, measure of the amount of you know information. But it's some. I mean, let's just take a look at this. Some football game is sixty minutes in length. Okay, in actual length, you can't possibly say that forty minutes doesn't include lots of walking around time. I mean, how much shot clock? I mean, what's shot clock? The wrong term. I'm not going to argue the numbers with you. I don't agree. In six and forty is right. It's got to be twelve. What's true? Football game. Hey, you're the one who started us on this. You're the one who said I've got multiple games. Do, no, well, actually, you, well, typically what it means is you switch It's like wallpaper. Them. It's you don't, basically you don't, you wallpaper. Have, you can actually have, I don't want to advertise MLB, but you can have more than one, but I typically have. We'll the, advertise them. Hey, Matt, we need some sponsors. Right. You know, right. So what I have is the Yankee game on all the time. And yeah. then if if something interesting is happening in the sport, a shutout, a um, no hitter Sh- going. Shutout or, sounds fascinating. They're, they're very fun. <laughs> you guys, you know, actually, I mean, for our audience, Shane actually likes baseball. I so. do. <laughs> Let's get that actually clear here. He's just, he's just. Change the channel. There's a shutout going on. <laughs> I do, but I, I, I don't like it to the exclusion of all other things, just to make a distinction. As opposed um, to New England Patriots, yeah, football. right, right, which, right. which I mean, he can't exclude anything I, I, other than. Well, no, I mean, no, I, I like baseball too, but um, but to say it's an action-packed sport or something like, or compared okay, to the amount of action, I have, I have a serious pack. question for you. The, I've, the baseball season just started clearly, so opening day was kind of the weird new opening day. Is Sunday a triple header? Um, I've, the Yankees lost. lost in kind of a disappointing fashion, I believe. Then the real opening day was Monday, and we're off and running. Here's a question for you. How long into the season before you have a, a pretty solid sense of the quality of the team? And here, let me tell you where I'm coming from. Good question. The, the, I have a hypothesis that, that if you think in kind of a hierarchical sense of performance, 
once you know the true quality of the team, you still have variation around the performance. But for a long time, you don't know the true quality of the team. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think a lot of what's interesting about a season, and for me it's going to be football, is that period of time when you're trying to figure out the true quality of the team. By the time you reach some point in the season, whether it's halfway or two-thirds, and you kind of understand how good the teams are, and the remaining variation is just chance around – yeah. then it's less interesting. But that stage where you're like, okay, yeah. are they good? Are they not good? What's the hierarchy here? That's a that's the most compelling part of the season to me. So I'm curious, in baseball, how long does that well, go? Well, it depends on who the, which team you're looking at. So I think it doesn't take long to identify the awful teams. Okay. So if a team comes out 3-12, and 12, it's still possible that the team is an average team, but it's not. they're not going to be competing. And that, that happens really, relatively quickly. So the better teams takes quite a bit of time. Why, yeah, would, I, I, why would it just, be asymmetric like that? Because well, be, I, I mean, because I think it is sort of... Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, left tail is more dramatic than the right tail. The left tail is right more, more dramatic than the right tail. Um, yeah, I, I think, I think it probably takes until like mid-June or so to t- really tell if your team's like a playoff contender. Okay. Yeah, um, sure. You know, so I mean, two and, I mean, and a half, two and a half months. Yeah, yeah. So it's not like basketball. After one week, you know who's. Well, I mean, <laughs> basketball. You don't even have to play the season. <laughs> you know, before you start, we like. knew, <laughs> and actually, you know, in preseason, exactly how this was going to go, and it went how. It well, went you know, that's actually a good question. We yeah. say that, and we whinge because you know yeah. the Warriors in the West and the Rockets are good, and the Cavs in the East. But there are some exceptions. I, it'd be well, fun. I mean, you don't know everything about a season. I mean, nobody. I don't think anybody would have predicted Russell what Russell Westbrook's doing out there. Maybe. Yeah, no. individual but, performances you don't but, know. But we exactly. Teams, yeah. that's, some, some teams, that's very exciting. Okay, so here's a here's a question: Which teams have actually in basketball most outperformed or underperformed expectations? I never thought that Boston Celtics. I yeah, think come I, to mind. I think right? they, you know? absolutely, they absolutely come to mind yep. because that collection is those aren't superstars. Well, right, but I mean, but you they're know, not going to think, think about our preseason. They are contending. Preseason of the image of the East in basketball was the Cleveland Cavaliers in the finals, and then some other teams had to make the playoffs. Yes. And so, yes, I mean, by definition, Boston is the one that's sort of percolated to the top as far as which other team will come the closest to challenging the Cleveland Cavaliers. I don't think very dead, many people I'm, out there actually believe they're going to beat the Cleveland Cavaliers in fair, the playoffs. Fair well, that, enough. But, I, but, but what, some team would have had to play that role, basically. I mean, I guess... I think ten, they're doing better than that. It's, no, they, 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 they look they, stronger than this sort of, like, you know, random team. Well, right. what, what I'm saying is that it's interesting because they're doing better than expectations. Of course, yes. there's, of course, expect, expectations are not going to be spot on, and so some are going to be more yep. wrong than others. I'm just digging for something. No, 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 no. and the Celtics are probably the best example of a sort of surprisingly go or a team that's outperf- you know outperformed their. But expectations. think about how unusual that is in basketball. That someone, a team that's unexpected to do quite well, is doing very well. And baseball, one, one that happens trying, all the time. Well, one of the things I'm trying to get at is maybe we're blocked by these teams at the top where it's been kind of deterministic for the last couple of years, mm-hmm. and there's more interesting things going on underneath yep. it. Now, they lose relevance, you know, come May, yep. but That's may, true. maybe That's we're true. biased or, because I mean, the yeah, top We're, is we're so hyper-focused clear. on what uh, amazing things Golden State and San Antonio and Cleveland have been doing that we don't really aren't tracking as closely as we should, you know, the kind of like, you know, the underclass or whatever but, you want to call it. But why should those. we? I mean, what's the point of why? I mean, what's so let's we can stand I mean, in back terms and of championship, nothing. Nothing, but like exactly. In terms of if that's, if that's all you care spoken for... like a real Yankee fan. My yeah, freaking God. I know, I know. I mean, don't right. care about things right. other than just, just the, the title? wins the ring? Like, I mean, no, I mean there's smell, an elegance you, of the sport. You can, you can, can smell the entitlement. <laughs> It pervades the air in here. This is we, should, we, should, from, we should open a window. We need to crack a window in here. Let the entitlement out. Adi, that surprises me given, I mean, look, 
Look, I, I, you know that I actually like baseball, and there's no sport I'd rather play than baseball. But look, there's a lot of waiting around for nothing in well, baseball. Right. I mean, the art, so how can you say, really how can you, say like you only fifth, care about yeah. the championships if you have 162 no, 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 no. games to go no, through no, between there's, now There's and two then. components. There's, there's the championship race. Then there's also just the elegance of watching the game, and then you have the individual performances. Those are the you're three. willing to unpack all that for baseball, but you're no, not I, for I will, basketball. No, you can you can uh, you can unpack that for 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 three sports. Any sport can be unpacked yeah, that way. Good. I'm not I'm not disavowing that. Okay. It is interesting, but you're talking about looking at the performance of a given team and saying, "Wow, this is interesting. They're doing better than they, than they they did." Well, what does that really relate to when they ultimately have no chance to make the actual finals in baseball? You don't have that. A team that's doing very well, and as we well know, can anyone except for the lower half of the team that has no chance of making the playoffs, can ultimately win the, the World yeah, Series. Yeah, so there's, uh, there's an optimal amount of chance in, yeah. in contests, basically. Right. And we, we are all of the opinion that there's not enough chance in, in basketball, basketball, essentially. But, you can, but it's but a beautiful I mean, I think, game. I, I you can watch the, it at well, any right, time. Right, right. But like, I, the, I think the analog in baseball, because we do know that like having made it to the playoffs, the playoffs are coin flips, and that's kind of you know nice, I More guess, less, for your yeah. team. Yeah. Um, that, that, but... You know, there, there still are a whole host. You sort of said, like, oh, except for the bottom half that, like, have no chance to send for the playoffs. That's the, that's the analog there. I mean, yes. whereas I think we kind of over-focus maybe on playoff contender teams, and there is a lot of things happening in the middle group in baseball as well that's interesting. But that's teams very interesting Over in or underperforming their expectations, but because they're not going to sniff the playoffs— they don't get the attention. But thinking about baseball, we have this giant pile of teams that are all competing for some, some playoff spots. And once they make it, make it in, they have a good shot of making it to the end, or as good a shot as any. In basketball, so many teams make the playoffs. There's a whole group right, of filtering, teams. Right, the filtering's pre-playoffs at baseball, as opposed That's to right. post-playoffs. And, then so, and that, makes, that makes it interesting to watch the entire baseball season, that you don't quite have. I mean, there are, obviously are some interesting moments, particularly when you think of it as a game to watch. Basketball is an incredible game to go see live. It is. The, the enormous stature of the human beings on the on the, the, on the and court. The grace. I mean, and, I think, and the grace, I think they're just, the best athletes. It's, a, it's an incredible experience to come to a game, and, and baseball is a different experience. Football is a different experience. Yeah. There's an elegance to watching watching these world world renowned and athletes do their thing. Yeah, or, or not, not or or sit on the bench for the entire game, <laughs> or sit on the benches as they had. To <laughs> I mean, which is their thing. <laughs> so this also. is Wh Wharton Moneyball. We're open lines at the moment. You can join one eight four four Wharton one eight four four nine four two. 7866, Kate, Audie, and Shane in the studio this morning. Uh, what has been interesting about the first few, you got three days under your belt about baseball. Anything, anything? Are the Yankees out? good? Have I, <laughs> do, do you know after two games? Well, the, that, I mean, you can, we'll talk about this, but the Red Sox, of course, are one of the most favorite teams to win this year. Yeah. Um, the Yankees are, do not have good prospects. They, they played a beautiful game yesterday. Sabathia went out and pitched five innings, shut out, and they pulled him after five, as they should, okay. and they rolled the rest of the game up with six relievers. So when you yeah. say they should, where is that coming from? This is what analytics has essentially taught us, that 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 relief, the relief staff should be brought in earlier for short stints and, and mop-up games I, at a much earlier time. I think analytics has taught us that if you have the Yankees relief staff, sure, <laughs> bring them in after five well, innings. But if you have most other teams' relief staffs, don't do that. How many relievers do you need for four innings? Five, four to five. Okay, yeah. Lord. if you really want to throw wanted, one reliever in inning, that's basically? what they did. That's what wow. they did. Yeah. Now this is, I think, was the, on the case of most teams. You need multiple relievers yes. per inning because they're not that good. They're not that good. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so hold on. Let's break down the staff again. It always blows me away that basically a quarter of a team is relief pitching. Essentially, yes, like yeah. six guys six, out six. of twenty-five yeah. or something. Yeah. But for example, the Red Sox have great starting pitching. Mm -hmm. The Yankees do not have good starting pitching. 
And so this is how the Yankees have stopped. Well, right. Their so, team. so, so, okay. Like, let's uh, let, let me pose a question to you guys. That's an interesting question. All right, it, and it's we'll very, be, I'm going to we'll, very. It's a very simple scenario. We've got three components of baseball. We've got relief pitching, starting pitching, and hitting. Um, and coming from a guy who wrote a paper on fielding, and you're well, <laughs> a good one too. Which, which came to the conclusion that fielding's not as important as we thought it was. But anyway, um, that those are the th- the three components of baseball that you're allowed to care about for this for this discussion. And your your team is allowed to be good at two of the three and not good at the other one. How do you allocate the not good? Which one do you? Which one would you prefer to not be good at? Hitting. No. I want a no. staff that's just going to shut everything down. If I'm going to be dominant. Now, what does it both. mean by not good at? Isn't you don't have stars? You just that's have average. Lot. What's the? You're, you're allowed to be the uh, like average. This, yeah, you're you're allowed to be the 75th percentile. Um, in two of the three, and oh. the twenty fifth percentile in one of the three. Oh, I thought it was going to be ninety fifth. Well, I would go with starting pitching, hitting, and then relief pitching with the twenty five. You so you get the twenty five relief pitching. Yes. I think that's the right answer. I mean, certainly like payroll wise and stuff like that. That's how teams. I think very. Oh, yeah, also. that's right. What if I could be ninety? Now can I have two ninety percent? I'm going to allow you, but I'm going to put you a ten for the bad okay, one. Okay, that's fine. Because all right, so 90, the, ten, isn't 90 that, 10. Isn't that what really great teams do in the playoffs all the time? They just shut down the other side. So why not be able to do that? If you had, that's with like two or three great pitchers, why not do it all season if you've got a great staff, top to bottom, ninetieth percentile? No one's going to score. We don't have to score very much. Right, and and relief pitching would therefore be the least important. My point, I mean, I think you guys are right. The relief pitching is probably the least important. That's generous. That's not what I said, but okay. Well, yeah, I, you you don't like hitting. All right, so Audie, <laughs> let, let me get well, you. Well, I think because I, 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 I what I think, well, think is, about the reasoning. Go behind. Tell me what the reasoning is behind. Why would I have thought about twenty five percent? Well, I I think because the relief pitchers do typically pitch less of the game. Yep, and they're more high variance. I just and so I I actually agree. If I had to pick this i would i would put the word you know the the bad part of my team would be relief pitching but i can tell you from watching a team where that's the exact case the red Sox, where the starting pitching is good the hitting's good the bullpen is not good um psychologically it's really hard to watch a team with a bad bullpen like yes, i think it, more more than leverage. more than more than those <laughs> other components yeah. i mean you you yankee fans don't know how lucky you are that i mean when was the last time the yankees had a bad bullpen like in well, my life, in my well, of lifetime, well, Rivera was there for twenty years practically, right? And then so, and then they just seamlessly like moved win, into you know Patances Chapman, like Miller, Andrew yes, Luck yes, replacing yeah. Peyton Man. They've yeah. been just been lucky to sort of have this seamless like amazing bullpen. And though we can agree, it's probably not the one thing a team should be amazing at. Psychologically, it must be so nice to watch that and have the confidence right. that they're going to shut out a game. So when you're when you have a close lead and it's in the fifth sixth inning, you're going to win, but. How many blowouts do you yep. have to suffer through? And I, I, I'm kind of worried. <laughs> then you're on the, the right psych- side. It's kind of a psychological thing that you don't count those kind of blowouts. Yeah, what do you See, call that? Might, that's, that's your yeah. feel. What do you call it when you don't remember those terrible events? Or that, or that you you you're that's, you're that's counter to most conventional wisdom that you would actually feel those. Worse. No, 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 no. I mean, you what you feel worse is these sort of close games that you lose because your bullpen. What you don't feel is all the games that you lost, the non-close I games see. that you lost because your starting pitching sucked. I see. That's interesting. They don't they don't they don't hurt you because you no, lost them you in never, the beginning. You're never, yeah, you're, you're never, never adapted. You, you're never in them. Yeah. So the ones where you get you yeah. you kind of get into the into the domain of gains and yeah. then it's only negative basically by the sixth inning it's only downside. But yeah. that's a nice thing about baseball because there's 162 games you 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 your team goes gets behind early you write off the game and you go on with life mm-hmm. it doesn't 
there's no emotion that's wrapped up on a, in a single game that you've kind of lost early. Audie's always that, selling the sport, no, right? So, <laughs> I'm just telling like it is. That's but. so weird because in other sports, they talk about maintaining the integrity of the regular season. Like one of the big knocks against having a playoff in college football is that right now every game counts. Mm-hmm. And so you're you're peddling kind of a pacifist philosophy. I don't want any emotional turbulence. I want a season that's just placid. That's no, a no, weird no. Thing I'm, to no, want I'm just saying that if your if your team is blown out early in the game, it doesn't ruin you for the next game because yeah, tomorrow because there's a new matter, game because it didn't matter because they're 162. That's right. It's a, I mean, I hear you, and on its face it has some logic, but it's just directly opposed to logic that other sports use. To talk about the importance of their games. Yeah, no, and I mean, I think there really is an, a, a difference in philosophy. Like, you know, that baseball really is about, like, it is viewed is as there... kind of a marathon, and, and any one game is not as important. And, and, you know, the kind of nice thing about losing a bad game is you literally go back, like, 12, 18 hours later, and you get to, you know, start a game. Maybe, you know, Whereas would... football is the opposite, yeah. right? you got to sit great, on that for a week. One of the great self-help books of all time was called Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. Yeah. Oh, yes. Maybe there's a sports analog in there. That is something about football fans are from X and but I'm but fans I'm are. both. Well, that's because I'm, I'm, I'm every man. Renaissance. You're every man. I'm a Renaissance man. Are we gonna are we gonna before our half hour is over? We're gonna turn. Our are you attention. just gonna winge the entire half hour? Seriously? No, no, no. What? Go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm just. Uh, I know we're, we have Rick Peterson today. He's going to be joining us to yeah. talk about baseball. Yeah. 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 There has been some basketball games in the collegiate arena yeah. that we might want to discuss. Yeah. Oh. I don't know which one interests you. I was a little bit more interested in the women's side of things. Well, it, it was. It was interesting. It, 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 the, 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 it was a great matchup on the men's side, but it, it wasn't a great game. It wasn't a great game. But it, it was shocking what happened on the women's side. So, Adi? So, the, so essentially, Mississippi State recovered from a, a humiliating loss last year to defeat UConn. And, yeah. and a 111-game winning streak. Absolutely unbelievable. And, mm. and they did it on this beautiful last-second shot. And It had uh, all the... All the moments that we mm-hmm. like. Mm-hmm. But then they went on to lose the championship two days later. Exactly. <laughs> they did go on to lose it. And in fact, in fact a real Ken- Cinderella story. We'll, we'll completely remember that. Well, let's put let's, So, Kate, you sent around an article that we looked at having to do with momentum yeah. in sports and comparing women and men. And actually, it turns out there's a. I went, dug around a little bit and there's a little bit of research on this. And apparently, the argument goes is that for women, momentum doesn't seem to matter very much. That, and for men, on the other hand, when oh, they have you're a victory, about tennis. You're talking about tennis. no, it's actually been replicated in other sports. So I just read a whole article about judo, an athletic contest, where they notice that when men have a, a victory, they makes them more likely to have a victory the next time, controlling for all the right things. But they don't notice that effect for Guns women. I'll get out of here. So I thought that was interesting in the tennis paper. The tennis. We're hoping to have Lionel on here, Lionel Page, I believe. Uh, can, can, can we just pause and say, like, how do you know so much about judo that you can say they're controlling for all the right things? I know nothing about I, I judo. Don't, I don't know squat. That is true. I read the <laughs> I read the article. I read the article. I tried very hard to understand their mathematical model, which is a right. rather detailed regression model. I read it through. It seemed to me that right. they were trying to control. I, I, I was just wondering so, if you were holding out some secret I, judo knowledge. I, I, I'm not holding out I mean... secret knowledge. But and so often, do you read articles where the, nothing is controlled for? They just observe something and they just say, "Hey, look." And so it's it's nice to know when you read an article that there's there's an attempt mm-hmm. to control for the favorite bias and where, the, the where do you power read your rankings. articles? Are you reading them in like Time Magazine? Judo Monthly? No, actually, this was in, this was published. No, I'm in, talking about the articles where nobody controls for anything. Oh, they tend to get reported in the newspaper, and then yeah, you go and you okay, check them okay. down. Okay. Newspaper, yeah. sure, yeah. sure, 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 fine. All right, so this is fascinating. So so there might be a general theory that momentum matters more for men in sporting contests than for women? 
That's right. I mean, they actually try to make we're a, big lugs that are just carried no, away well, wait, by the, I mean, No, it's have, the testosterone. Have, have people, they actually have an argument, and it has to do with testosterone, which supposed to which, which uh, gets very highly elevated after a victory, and it stays elevated, and this gives men extra ability, and women don't share this after victories, after but, victories. But, a, but a special lack of ability after, after losses. Loss. That's right, and this is the claim. And actually, they, the the the, uh, the authors of the judo paper made an wait, analog wait, wait. to stock market. And then traders, after they have a success, that this gets them revved up and they take excess. This does risk. sound like Time Magazine. To it's me. not Time. It's a behavior. It's an economic. So journal. here's here's one place that might. So if in the in 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 micro level behavior, you might expect then to see more hot hand shooting, perceived hot hand shooting among men than among women. So this is utterly studyable. If men get a little extra jolt whenever they make the shot. They're going to be more prone to take. That's what. That's one explanation. There, are there more? Or I mean, like take. I mean, we don't have to go to judo. Or admittedly, none of us know anything. Um, like, well, what? What about like, yeah, WNBA versus NBA? Are there more sort of team streaks in WNBA versus NBA? Because I mean, that would be kind of a well. There's natural... a lot of variance in WNBA. So the you know UConn wins 111 games in a row because right. it's just okay, so much you can, better. You, sure, well, no, sure, no, but I mean, you don't have to professional. Be, yeah, professional. Oh, right, WNBA. But, but the the point here was is that we I brought this back to the Mississippi State losing is that it, the fact that they had won this incredible uh, upset didn't give them this is this is the this is what I'm tossing. No, not if, but essentially this is not surprising for women they that they don't get carried through. They didn't have the testosterone advantage. That's a shame. But and so this is actually an argument made. I mean, this is the testosterone advantage. But this is a this is a testable phenomenon. Although it's very hard because actually controlling for everything properly is difficult. Yeah, well, they yeah, yeah. they did it in this judo. In the judo. Article, in the so judo. I mean, I mean, <laughs> presumably you can do this in other well, sports. Judo is a little maybe bit judo is it's easier to control for everything. Well, I, don't, I don't know. There's only two competitors. And uh, it's kind of like a head-to-head matchup, and there's there's hundreds of them because they're tournaments. <laughs> okay. So I don't think it's I think the data is a little so, bit more. So the thing that, I think the thing that's the single thing that most jumped out to me this past week does come from women's sports, and it's the Lexi Thompson thing in the LPGA. Oh, did y'all catch? Yes, this? I did. You I read I read that was in the Wall Street Journal. Yeah. You so, want to tell us about it? Or? Well, I you know I only consumed it from a distance, but uh, I, I, there was a penalty called on the woman leading the first women's major of the year. So the LPGA, identified by a fan, a fan who watched TV. <laughs> that actually happens a lot now. No, right? no, get this shame. This is Sunday, and she's leading by like three, and the guy writes an email to whoever it is. I mean, who even knows who to write the email to? Because he watched a tape, he watched a tape, didn't watch it live, he watched a tape of the previous day's round and saw that she mismarked her ball. It wasn't even, it was a matter of degree, it wasn't even a categorical thing, it was a matter of degree. Like, you can't, you can't What's place... What's the psychology behind somebody doing this? Yeah, exactly. Whoa, whoa, whoa. exactly. So how much did she mismark the ball? By how much? Like half an inch or something. Ha- and they can no, tell I, this by I, the... I, I, yeah, yeah. So whatever the, the limit is, they could tell that she violated the limit. Now, I might be exaggerating by saying it's more than half an inch, but I, I, it's something like that. So that's even, it's a matter of degree and not category. But the thing that kills me is, this is the next day. The next day, I mean, I would, yeah. it kind of adds color that it's a guy on TV. You, you have to be able to catch somebody in the yeah, same day. That's my yeah. rule. And then there's other, this other thing that happens. The Jensen rule. That's the Jensen rule. Hmm. Well, I think that's really the most egregious part here. Because here's an example from this past football season. Oklahoma State was playing like Central Michigan or something. I think it was Central. Was it Central Michigan? Early in the season. And the refs made a mistake on the next to last play of the game and gave Central Michigan an extra play I remember this, yeah. on which they threw uh, some kind of Hail Mary hook and ladder thing and won the game on the last play of the game that was mistakenly given to them. Yeah. Like objectively mistakenly given. They knew, the, the referee just knew this within like 10 minutes of the game being over. Yeah. 
but you let it stand. You the game to. was what it was. Yeah. But here's the LPGA calling a penalty on a woman 24 hours afterwards. You know, round was over. Yep. She's within a couple of hours of winning the first major or whatever. You just can't. That can't be. That's not, yeah. that's not the way to run these sporting contests, right? Agreed. Yeah. But even, I mean, one of the nice arguments that I read in criticism of this is that when fans are at home watching on the video, they tend to be watching the stars. The leaders, and the this makes an unfair well, disadvantage to those who are watched more carefully. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So asymmetric attention would push into this. That's right. Yeah. That's right. There's also this thing in golf where you get penalized for the mistake, and then you get penalized for turning in a wrong scorecard, which it's only wrong because of the mistake. So there's yeah. this weird baked-in double penalty that happens. I think they're intended to be separate things because both are violations, but they the, the latter necessarily follows from the former. If you don't tell them until the next day, yeah. it's just... It, that seems that seems really, and that cost her the tournament because those yeah, extra two because she strokes. Went, she went in. She I think Up it knocked three. her. I think it knocked her down Four. one. She tied. They went into extra. And they, she lost. They, yes. they, and she lost in the first extra hole. So it's just that's egregious. ridiculous. Now the good thing is, I think it's so Who outrageous. Who is sitting at home watching these games and like being <laughs> like, "Oh, that is slightly wrong. <laughs> I'm going to send an." E-. That's just awful. Yeah, it it really is. It really is. I, I'm hopeful, and I believe it, it. It probably will be the case that the LPGA and maybe even the PGA rethinks the the way these things are done it's yeah. just not okay it's you know the golf rules and and there were some dustin johnson had a problem in a major last year right so a similar kind of thing mm-hmm. it just didn't knock him all the way out the, the these the the governing institutions are having to rethink these rules weren't made for millions of viewers watching tapes yeah. closely any you know any time in the following whatever when, why not take a championship away if they catch it you know a week later yeah what's the difference I should go back to my eight nineteen eighty six, like you know, video of the nineteen eighty six Masters uh, surely, or something like that. Nicholas Maybe Nicholas like wrong. moved a ball or something like that. We surely, can, yeah, you can get that thing taken away. Yeah, by God, insert yourself in it. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, that has been the first quarter of the show. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics every Wednesday morning. Shane, Eric, and Adi. I'm sorry. Shane, Adi, and Cade in the studio this morning. <laughs> Usually you forget a co-host name, not your own, but that's just a natural humility. Exactly. Always thinking about you guys. Always thinking about you. You can join the conversation. Please do. Give us a ring. one eight four four wharton that's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Matt Johnson standing by for your phone call. He'll also take an email from you. You can email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Especially if you're listening one of the five times we're replayed over the next week. We have a Twitter account out there. You can follow us at WMoneyBall, at WMoneyBall. We get on there a few times a week. We try to keep uh, in touch with our guests and all kinds of sports analytics news over the course of the next seven days. Audie's going to be live tweeting the next uh, judo championship. So. <laughs> hey, hey, we can get some judo people on here. We have not done enough in that whole domain. We have not we can, done we enough do with judo. <laughs> we have not done enough with judo. That's so what right. do you think about judo? <laughs> it's underexplored on the show is what I think about judo. In the next half hour, we have our first baseball guest of the season. Uh, Rick Peterson joining us. Rick is the longtime pitching coach, MLB pitching coach. He was coach for the Oakland A's during the Moneyball era. He was coach with the Mets 
And in recent years, he's been pitching development coach for the Baltimore Baltimore Orioles organization. A brand new book out. Great book. Actually, you can strongly recommend it. Crunch Time, How to Be Your Best When It Matters Most. Rick Peterson, welcome back to the show. Hey, how's everybody doing, man? We're Rick, doing, we're great doing, to have you on we're, our we're show. We're doing great, Rick. What? How are you doing? Wow, doing tremendous. Opening day. How can you beat that, huh? Well, this is the thing. This is we're now into baseball season. We go through this the, the long off season, Rick Petersonless, which is a sad time around here. And then uh, the season's here, and we're glad to have you back. What have you been paying attention to this opening week? Well, you know, I, I'm really interested in when you see uh, how the teams break out of spring training because that that, that that's really critical and. And your your number one goal when you come into spring training is to leave healthy. That that all the people that come into camp that may have been dinged up last year or and or come in healthy, that that you leave healthy because you know that that's really the barometer of, of where your team is. And then also the fact that that you have a, a really good idea of what your resources are in AAA. Um, so you're really playing with about a 35 man roster plus or minus rick can you tell um, us a little bit about that as a as a development coach you have you had responsibilities for the whole the whole franchise down through all their minor league and most people don't think about that they think about you know we've been talking the first half of the half hour of the show we're talking about you know pitching staffs and the five or six relievers you have there in the bullpen but you're talking about well actually as a as an organization you have to think about what you have in AAA as well how does that affect what you do how does that affect your thinking in those first few weeks well, it affects your thinking, knowing the fact that that typically now players that have options and options meaning the fact that that you can be you're you're under the property of the current team that you're with, and that if you get sent down to the minor leagues, you you, you go back to the minor leagues, but you're still you still have an option, meaning that they can send you down and they can bring you back throughout the season yep. at any given time. Once you run out of options, if they send you down, then you're available to all the other 29 teams in, in, in the league. Okay. So the fact, so the fact that you have options, and, and you want to structure your team so that you have a lot of inventory on your team of players who have options. So typically, let's say you get into an extra inning game, or your starter maybe gets knocked out in the first or second inning, you know, due to a really rough outing, and now you got to go through seven, eight innings of your bullpen. You know, that, then typically, if if that if that bullpen pitcher has an option and he pitches say three or four innings that day, he'll typically be sent down right after the game. Really? And then you're going to bring yeah. Then you're going to bring back somebody from AAA because now you have a full bullpen. You know that you can cover all these innings. There's no sense having a pitcher there that on your on your current roster that can't pitch for three days because you I, have to give them three three days rest. I don't think I realized it was quite that fluid. So that and that how 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 many pitchers are treated that way if you will? Like how how much of the relief staff actually gets bounced around back and forth like that? Well, it's not only relievers but your starters. Is that right? So uh, yeah, I'm going to say a, a minimum of 5 6 7 8 guys. Oh wow. You know, without question including players. When when they get players. sent down like that, do they do they? Um, you mean so position players? So when it's do they stay for a while? How and how do they feel about it? Well, they know coming in, you know, and and, and it actually is, is very productive, you know, for your for your team because of the fact that the players in AAA that don't make your team out of spring training, they know that hey, listen, I'm one phone call away, and and typically, you know, they're, they're going to pay attention to they're going to pay attention to the game. And they realize that 
you know, here's the five or six pitchers on that pitching staff that have the options in the big leagues, and they take a look at it and say, oh, wow, you know, the starter got knocked out in the fourth inning. They brought in Smith today, and he pitched three innings. They're going to make a move after the game. Right, right, right. But, Rick, it's, it's, not, it's not an unlimited back-and-forth to the majors minors routine you do what's the sort of uh, the protocol how, when do you lose options i mean how many times can you bring them back and forth before they become available to other teams or you have to keep them in the majors you, you you basically i believe it's i believe it's once you get put on the major league roster i believe it's three or four years so you have three years i believe it is that you have options oh, wow. and then after that third year you're out of options which meaning now you got to either make the big league team, and if you don't make the big league team, like like the like the one big uh, pitcher for the Orioles going back about three years ago is Zach Britton, and I remember being with him in AAA, and we were having a long conversation, and he's like, God, you know, I got to really get my act together, man, because I'm I'm out of options after this year, and I said, Man, you got to you should be celebrating, you're out of options, you're going to be pitching in the big leagues with somebody next year, if you don't make the club out of spring training. Somebody's going to take you without question. Mm-hmm. You know, so so it's almost like it's almost like a relief, you know, to a degree, because you know that if you're one of those players that's a big league player that maybe doesn't have the right situation, um, because maybe maybe they signed a couple relievers, maybe they signed a starter, you know, in the free in free agency, which means that they just basically took your spot, you know, is what happens. And then, but you know, coming into the next season, that I'm, I'm going to be in the big leagues next year. Yeah, but, but uh, Rick, this Shane, uh, that, that that for the kind of players that are really on the margins, though, it must be actually stressful to run out of those options because then, then you know, you sort of said that the, then the big league team has to make a decision: do we it's promote riskier. them right. or do we let them go? And if and you know, obviously, getting promoted is great, but the the downside of having no options is teams are less likely to hold on to you as well, right? Not, not, not necessarily, because there's a lot, a lot of players, and and especially pitchers, um, that 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 are in that, you know, they're kind of like right in that. They call them four A, is what they call them. You know, they're 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 better than a triple A pitcher, but maybe they're not. They're just not quite there uh, to, to stay in the big leagues with that current club, mainly because maybe that current club is a contender. So let's say you take the White Sox this year, who are in a total rebuilding year. They're they're happy to take a pitcher who's got big time upside, who hasn't been able to fit into a pennant contender. And they say, look, you know, we'll, because at a pennant contender, like let's say for example, you know, you look at the Blue Jays right now, or you look at, you know, the Orioles or the Red Sox, they can't afford to bring up a pitcher from AAA that that is going to kind of like get beat up a little bit to to settle in to be a big league pitcher because they're they're there to win right now. The White Sox, they're happy to take a prospect that they know that you know what they may not have a good year this year, but they're gonna they're gonna get 30 starts, 32 starts, and they're gonna settle in. And and within a year or two, when we're ready to to start to contend again, you know they're gonna be at the top of our rotation. Got it, got it. This is Wharton Moneyball. We're talking to Rick Peterson, our regular friend of the show, regular guest. Now that we're back in baseball season, we'll be hearing from him every other week or so. He's also recently published a book, Crunch Time: How to Be Your Best. When it matters most, Rick, there have been some rules changes in baseball. One of the most obvious for pitchers is that you no longer um, have to throw the, the the intentional walks. You can just kind of signal, and the guy will take a base. Do, do you think that's significant? Is it interesting to you at all, or is it just kind of a non-event? Uh, I think it's more of a non-event. Um, but what's really interesting as a pitching coach, I would make sure that all our pitchers in spring training intentionally walked uh, hitters in in the bullpen. Because I want to, because some people they get the yips, 
Oh, yeah. really? I've noticed that, too. Yeah. So that that's not just uh, – because I, I always had this sort of perception that, like, that – that um pitchers who throw like uh, that are told to give an intentional walk and actually have to throw the intentional walk some sometimes have trouble with their control coming out of the intentional walk so that's that's a kind of a known phenomenon in baseball that's a factor but but also i was just watching mlb network the other day and they showed like i i i shouldn't say highlights they showed lowlights <laughs> of the intentional walk of of, of you know balls getting launched to the backstop, um, you know it, because the pitcher can't do it. And then I remember my first year in New York, you know, with the with the Mets, with the veteran staff, with you know Tom Glavin and Al Leiter and you know the likes. And so we're in the bullpen. It was like it was like the two 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 bullpens before opening day. So I said to Tom Glavin, I said, all right, let's go ahead and intentionally walk a right hander. And he turns and looks at me with his face. He goes, you don't think I know how to walk a right hand? You don't think I know how to do this? <laughs> I said, no, no, I, I think you do, but I want to be able to see it, okay? I said, because when I'm sitting in the dugout and one of our guys throws this ball off the back, off the screen in, into the stands, and, and, and Willie Randolph turns to me and said, you guys ever practice this? Uh, no, why would we? <laughs> because it's really embarrassing if you – because – you may be sitting in a dugout, and I've been there before, where the manager's like, "Hey, what if we put this guy on?" I said, "You know, this guy really struggles with this. You know, I mean, I, I think we should put him on, but I just wanted you to know that he's not really comfortable doing this." So, Rick, but this has changed now. That you don't actually have to make an intentional walk anymore. You just signal, and it goes to the first no, base. No. yeah, you just put him on. But, so, but I, I think, I think, I think from the fan standpoint, I think it's really good. From the player standpoint, it's a non-issue really. But I mean, what what fan wants to sit there and just watch? You know, just watch that. Right, you know, you're right. Watching, it you're, takes you're, 20 you're seconds. I mean, it's not. So, uh, Rick, we uh, we had Brendan Harris on the show last week. Brendan is an executive NBA student here. He's a former Major League Baseball uh, shortstop, second baseman. And he works for the Angels now, player development for the Angels. We were talking about new technology and how he brings along players during spring training. And one of the things he talked about was a, a growing appreciation for the swing plane, the optimal swing plane for batters. Yeah. So apparently they have learned from, you know, all the new technology we have to track swings and exit velocity and all that, that an upward angle is actually the optimal. And he wouldn't talk about the exact angle, but flat is not ideal. And down and is and not certainly ideal. not down is ideal. Brennan said growing up, he was always told to kind of swing down. What? So if this, if we take this as true and pervasive, what implications does it have for pitchers, if anything? Well, you're seeing more and more pitchers pitch to the top part of the strike zone and above the strike zone. Okay. Because? Because, because when you – well, just think about it. If you're going to take a swing that has a slightly upward angle, and the higher the pitch is, the more difficult it is to hit that ball. The, low, the lower the pitch, you know, it, it's easier to hit that ball. Okay. So, you know, so, so, what, so what happens is when you talk about expanding the strike zone for a pitcher – you typically expand it further down, further in, and further up. So, so, so you're seeing a lot of pitches throw, throw fastballs above the belt, from the belt to the letter, and even sometimes a little bit above the letters, because that swing is very difficult to, to put to put that kind of swing plane on it with right. an upward angle. So, Rick, isn't this this is counter to the safe? place to pitch historically right? pitchers want to keep the ball down and they talk about hanging curveballs and getting the ball up in the zone and so it, it is this kind of changing the way pitchers think and this is and, and push, pushing yeah. it pushing yeah, I mean, Rick, to, you've, you've been preaching the bottom of the strike zone since i've known you 
And I, and I still will, and it, mainly because – well, here's the thing. The bottom of the strike zone, the batting average is still just over 190 at the very bottom of the strike zone. The issue is at the bottom of the strike zone, if you actually throw a pitch that's actually at the bottom of the strike zone, it's a strike. The pitches that we're just talking about right now, these are balls. If the batter doesn't swing, it's a ball. You know, so, so what you're doing is you're, you're risking that if this, if this hitter has more discipline at the upper part of the strike zone, above the strike zone, that you're basically, you're basically throwing a ball intentionally. And, and, and it's a lot, it's a lot more difficult to see that, that you're basically pitching behind the count if he doesn't swing. Mm-hmm. But what you've seen over the last couple of years, walks are at an all time low. Strikeouts are at an all-time high, and home runs are at an all-time high. Mm-hmm. You know, so this no, this notion of this upper, this upper kind of plane of, of a swing, that's great if you have power. Because if you're going to put the ball in the air, it better go far. Right. <laughs> right. Because if it, does, if it doesn't go very far, you know what the outcome is. You know, but but so what you're seeing is, like, if you go back a year ago, Rob, Robbie Cano hit one home run, I think it was, one or two home runs in the first half of the season. And they went back and looked at his track man data, which is exactly what you're talking about right now. And what was happening is his swing plane was such that he had exit velocity of many of, of, of exceeding over 100 miles an hour. If the exit velocity is over 100 miles an hour, 101 to like 105, 110, 12 is really, really high. If the exit velocity is over 100 miles an hour and at 102, 103, 105, and you put the ball up in the air in a slight plane, that ball is going to go. That ball is going to go out of the ballpark. Mm-hmm. So what was happening is Robbie Cano was he was basically was hitting one hoppers to the second baseman. He's hitting one hop homers to the second baseman <laughs> because of the swing because of the swing plane. Right. And then what they did was they took a look at his swing plane and they said, listen, you know, we we have to get a slightly upper, you know, like kind of an upper uppercut swing plane because you're making great contact, but you you have one or two homers. In the second half of the season, you hit over 20 homers. Well, Rick, that's amazing to me. As a, as a development coach, what can you say about how hard it is for a player to change his swing like that? The guy's been swinging like that his entire life. And it, it reminds me of golf, and I know you play a lot of golf. You know, Tiger Woods decides to rebuild his golf swing, and, you know, it sets him back a year. Any, any golfer sets him back a year. How is it that Cano is able to reconstruct his swing on the fly and, and you've you've got a or is a light- it this case that this downward plane was some uh, was sort of a new development for him? Because I mean, he had plenty of home run hitting power prior to that season in question, right? Uh, yeah, that, definitely, and, and and I think it's just sometimes that you know I, I think it comes back to what you've heard me say many times: and God we trust, all others must have data. You know, so fortunately, you know, if you go back and flip the clock back ten years ago you would be searching of like, what do we do with Robbie Cano? It seems like he's making good contact, but now you go back and look at the data and you say, look, his, his swing plane angle, you know, is level right now. He needs to be at about a 10 degree uppercut, you know, in, in order to maximize the kind of contact that he's making. But, but I, it's not, it's really not that difficult at all. It's really, it, it, it's, this game is a game of adjustments. And I think every sport is a sport of adjustments. I mean, I was, I was listening to a bunch of the interviews yesterday of the of the the golfers for the masters mm-hmm. and they were talking to justin uh justin justin johnson and they were asking him like you know what why is it that this course really kind of favors you now and he said well he goes going back two years ago i would hit everything with a little bit of a draw and and he said i went now to a cut a, a cut swing Jeez. you know with, with with my driver and he's and and typically 
you know, my understanding of this is that, you know, when you have fairways that are slanted, you know, with 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 slopes, that you you don't really want the ball to run after it hits. You'd like the ball to settle in. Okay. You know, so that high that high cut swing and 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 TrackMan all started with golf. I mean, that's all they look at. All they look at is exit speed and spin rates and launch angle. Right. 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 Yeah. So once he got. You know, and he said that's been one of the biggest differences in my game now. Even though I'm really long off the tee, but now now I play I play a little cut shot. And he said there are there. And he mentioned one of the holes. I don't know whatever hole it was, but he said you know I think on 13 is about the only hole that I would like to get a little bit of a draw. Um, but other than that, every one of these holes. I mean, it's a, it's amazing how how th- these guys know every single hole and every single you know angle and where they want to hit this ball and how they want to hit it and what kind of shape of the shot they they have so it it's very it's very similar in baseball it's yeah it sounds it sounds to me like the way you prepare your pitchers for uh, facing a team you know y'all have strategies for every batter and sequences and all those kinds yep. of things what do you what how much do you think how much difference do you think you could make with 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 me Audie, and Shane if we went out to the ballpark and you watch this pitch a little bit. Could you give us a tip? <laughs> How much could you improve our performance? I would. I would pay good money in for like this. an so hour. Uh, an hour. Rick, you got session. some time. <laughs> You're like, well, that was great, yeah. Shane. But this time, try and make it to the catcher. <laughs> I, I would. I would uh, probably my guess would be, and I haven't seen any of you pitch, but my guess, my first tip would be probably like hit the books. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We might be ahead of you. Follow up tip, don't quit yeah, your day we, job. We, yeah, right, exactly. So, but you know, Rick, I wanted to ask you a question because we've been we've been interviewing a lot of people who are bringing at least technology to to performance improvement. We just interviewed someone who's doing this for basketball. So you have this track man, it's in golf, it's in baseball. Are there uses of this technology for immediate feedback or is it the kind of thing that you study with the tapes or after after you finish your your training? No, you can get immediate feedback without question. I mean, you, you, you can you can get, you know, release points. You know, maybe someone's arm is dropping down a little bit lower. I mean, but when you talk about TrackMan, TrackMan, what they're tracking is the ball. They're not tracking a body part. Right, right. So you, so they, so how do they? Uh, if you're swinging swinging an uppercut, how would you know that immediately? Let's say you're off by, by ten by, degrees, five. By, by how the ball comes off the bat. I see. Yeah. So they by, do. By the, they do the same thing with golf, right? You go into these, you go into these golf stores these days, and they'll right. set you up on a, th- and they'll tell you everything that's going on with that club, based on what's going on with the ball. That's interesting, right? Okay. Now, the one thing that's really interesting when you talk about perceived velocity, and you've heard that probably you've heard that comment before, perceived velocity meaning the fact that when the ball comes out of the pitcher's hand, the average in the big leagues of release point. Distance from the rubber towards home plate is just over six feet, about six, six, six feet three inches. Meaning that the ball is traveling just just under fifty four feet to get to home plate. So you look at Noah Syndergaard, for example, he he releases the ball about seven and a half feet from the pitching rubber. Oh, meaning man. that meaning that his pitch is traveling just over fifty, just under fifty three feet, fifty fifty two and a half feet. So it's got his higher velocity, perceived velocity to the batter because of that. Yeah, correct. So his perceived velocity is two miles an hour faster than what his actual velocity is. You know, so so oftentimes you'll see, and then he's pitching. He has the highest average velocity uh, of any starting pitcher in the big leagues. It's like last year it was like ninety seven point five or whatever. So his perceived velocity is like ninety nine and a half miles an hour. You know, which which is incredible. So so that I think sometimes for the hitter. 
knowing that it's it's like okay, listen, I'm looking at the velocity on the board because they they do the hitters. They, everybody thinks that the pitcher is the only one that looks at the velocity in the stadium when they when they flash it. The hitter wants to see it as well, mm-hmm. and he mm-hmm. he wants to see how how fast is this guy throwing because you know they they know you know they know like all right, listen, this guy's 95. Okay, I know what 95 is like. Right. You know? So so some days that looks too fast and some days it looks slow. You know, you hear people say the game slowed down on me, you know, guys are really, the game slows down. But, but if they know that the perceived velocity is, is two miles an hour faster, they're looking at 95 and saying, listen, I, I got to really gear up now. Right. This is, this is, this is really not 95. This is really like 97. Right. Right. Rick, play, which I think is fascinating. Thanks for getting our season going again, man. And it's great to hear from you. I always love having you on the show. Hope you've had a great offseason, and uh, we'll look forward to talking with you more as the season unfolds. Awesome. Great to hear your guys' voice. Yeah, right, nice back. to have you. That was Rick Peterson, longtime Major League Baseball uh, pitching coach. He was with the A's in the Moneyball era with the Mets, and most recently he's been pitching development coach for the Baltimore Orioles. He also has a new book out, Crunch Time, How to Be Your Best When It Matters Most. We can highly recommend that, and we'll be hearing more from Rick as we go through the baseball season, I'm sure. What do you think, guys? I think we should go out and have Rick give us a little coaching session. Well, I was kind of—it's intriguing to sort of hear about the adjustment thing. I think for somebody like me, where uh, there's such a narrow band of how of good play that I sort of think about adjustments as like you know, like really taking me out of that very narrow band. But for professional athletes, maybe they have a wider latitude right. for adjustments. Like most of what they do is good. Most so- of what they do is good, so they have more no, wiggle room for adjustments. Yeah. And those yeah. wiggle yeah. rooms make a difference. All right, guys, that has been the first half of the show. We've got another half to go. Come back and join us on Wharton Moneyball after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern, live from the the Wharton School, Huntsman Hall, our Locust Walk studio this morning on a gorgeous April morning. This is Cade Massey hosting this morning with my collaborators and buddies, fellow faculty members here at Wharton, Audi Weiner, Shane Jensen, Eric Bradley is out this week, but will be joining us next week. And for a while after that, we're told. We are at the halfway point of the show, just off the phone with our, our regular baseball guest, Rick Peterson. In the next half hour, we're going to bring on another guest. We're going to talk a little golf. We've got the first major of the year coming up this week. First and best. First and best, in many people's opinion, the Masters down in Augusta, Georgia. I think it's par three day today at the Masters. They play the little course, and then the tournament kicks off tomorrow. Will you guys be taking in the tournament at all? Are you interested in the Masters? No, I think I'll probably watch it quite a bit. So I'm intrigued by how much of a favorite Dustin Johnson is. Dustin is the number one player in the world, but he's going off at five to one. He's been on quite. I mean, I'm not saying that that's justified. That's probably like not the right odds. Five to but, one, so like yeah. seventeen or eighteen percent. Yeah. yeah. So this is um, this is getting into. He tiger, has had tiger. quite the streak, right? I mean, he's basically won something like four of his last five tournaments, three of his last four. Yeah, and he had good majors performance last so, so year as well. Put this into context for me: five to one compares to Tiger Woods at his best. Tiger was, Woods was getting 25% yeah. uh, and kind of justifiably so, so. for a while oh. he was winning every fourth tournament. Um, so, but, but we haven't seen many players in that territory. To help us understand that and everything else about golf, we are bringing on to the show Mark Brody. Mark, welcome to the show. 
Hey, thanks for having me on. We are always delighted to have you on. Mark is a professor at the Columbia Business School. He's also the author of Every Shot Counts. That has been a wildly influential book. And Mark is one of those amazing stories of a guy who sat on his couch and said, hey, the way they're reporting stats about this major sporting event doesn't make sense. Let me fix it. And went out and fixed it. Terrifically, the world has adopted some of what Mark has suggested. So, for example, strokes gained putting and then strokes gained in other aspects of the game as well. Mark, we're always delighted to have you on to talk about golf. What what This is a, for many people when they first start turning their attention to golf in the year. What has this week? What is this week for you? Is it anything different from normal? Well, it's it's nice because the the attention of of the the golfing world is sort of on on the Masters and the casual golf fans. For some of the casual golf fans, this is the one tournament that they that they really pay attention to mm-hmm. in in the year. So I'm I'm always excited for the chance for the Masters to help grow the game and expand the interest beyond the the, the hardcore set set of fans. So. Mm-hmm. It's it's really great to see that, and this week in, in particular, it's the first uh, Masters without uh, you know Arnold Palmer hitting the uh, ceremonial tee shot, and right. there's the top golfers in the world are there, and they're all playing well, and so it's right. a real um, uh, it's a real treat to have you know the top golfers playing well going into the Masters. So I'm going to start out with a hard question. Uh, one of the stories that's coming out of the Masters this week is the weather. Yep. Apparently, it's going to be very windy tomorrow. At least that was the forecast as of yesterday. Yep. But there's debate on what the impact of the wind will be. Some people say, well, it favors the people you know with experience, and others say, no, it throws everything out the window, and now it's every man for himself. What do you think the impact of high winds actually is? Well, let me go a little bit. Uh, to the weather, but in a slightly different direction. If you think about the uh, the rain, mm-hmm. so it's it's also forecast to be you know torrential rains today, and they can dry out the greens because of their sub air system, but it's going to take a little bit longer for the uh, fairways to dry out. Okay, and so there can be a chance of, of mud balls. Yep, and uh, the Masters has never gone to lift clean in place, so they're not going to go to lift clean in place. Ah, so there school. will be there will be there will be mud balls likely uh-huh. tomorrow, and I think mud balls add an element of randomness right. that you might not normally uh, have under okay. under other conditions. So I think that sort of levels levels the playing field. Yeah. A, a bit. A bit. Um, right, right, right. So th- that reminds me of a question that we ponder sometimes. You know the. Do you think the Masters is different from some other tournaments in that it rely it more reliably identifies the golfers who are playing best? You know, some people knock the PGA because we often get players people don't know, but this is people talk about this quality of some tournaments or some courses. They better discriminate players by their ability. Is this a valid way to think about it? And does Augusta count as doing that? Well, I haven't had the done the research to have numbers to back things up but i think the the primary factor is not the course but who's playing okay and the masters has the smallest field of all the majors mm-hmm. something which, like 96 or so is that right yeah but it's 96 but effectively it's much smaller than that because oh, yeah, there's, right. there's some amateurs in there mm-hmm. there's some you know uh champions from from years past that that have no chance mm-hmm. of of winning the tournament so even if the field is um 90 something like you like you said the effective size of the field is even smaller right. so among among the majors uh the hard thing is to get in 
But once you're in, it's the easiest major to win. <laughs> um, but in terms of who's up on the leaderboard, why, why do you see this year in and year out, these big names at the top of the leaderboard? Because it's mostly big names that are playing. <laughs> yeah. That's a terrifically parsimonious explanation, Mark. No, no. I mean, I, I'll, maybe I'll just push a little bit on the, this idea that once you're. I mean, I, I agree that the, the, it's the most filtered tournament. So once you know, it's the toughest to get in. But once you're in, it's the easiest to win. So, oh, that doesn't mean it's easy. It's just right. easy relative to other. Just in sheer ma- numbers. Ma- just so- in terms of sheer numbers. To the extent but, that we're all just flipping coins out there. But I mean, I mean, one one could at least argue that, like, if all you're doing is kind of chopping off that left tail a little bit higher, that shouldn't lead to any more sort of surprise victors or anything like that, right? Oh, I, I, I disagree. If you take if oh, really? you take a look at at um, a typical PGA Tour event. And not all the top players are in a typical PGA Tour event, but uh, certainly the Memorial and some other very high-profile tournaments, you'll often have a player who's ranked 100th in the world winning mm-hmm. because you have a lot of them. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's true. The, these are all things that are happening on the margin. So Dustin Johnson, Jordan Spieth, and Rory McIlroy, I think, have slightly higher chances of winning um, at at the Masters for for a number of reasons than than at other PGA Tour events, but just the numbers you've got so many uh, players with a, a field of 144 where virtually everybody in that field could win. Right, and so the top players have to beat more more players, any of whom could could get hot that that week. So. Yeah, and you're um, not saying some of these other factors don't matter, but you're saying, look, here's probably the biggest explanatory variable, and let's start with that because it's a very parsimonious one. makes makes a yeah, ton of sense. Yeah. So we're, we're talking to Mark Brody. Mark is a, a finance professor at Columbia Business School and the author of Every Shot Counts. Can, uh, there's lots we want to talk with you about, but can we do a little bit on the, the strokes gained putting and what's happened with that over the last few years? Like, what's the state of that statistic, and what impact do you think it's had on you know broadcast, of course, and fans, but, but even players? Well, it's I think had a had a tremendous impact, and it was rolled out by the PGA Tour in 2011, May of 2011, and I had I had had this in my software since 2005, and I wrote up uh, a paper and presented it at conferences in in 2008, and then in 2011. The by, by the way, Mark, what kind of conferences were those? Well, these were two two types. There are some golf conferences. One's called the World Scientific Congress of Golf, mm-hmm. and the other was uh, an informs an operations research. Ah, conference. we're we're informs people. All right, yeah, glad absolutely. to hear that. All right, yeah, yeah. So, um, the PGA Tour realized that there are three main putting stats: putts per round, putts per green, and regulation, and uh, length of hold putts. We're not identifying the best putters, mm-hmm. and. They did a very clever thing when um, they prepped the media, the coaches, the players about this new strokes gain stat, which was they gave them two lists of, of uh, players ranked by their putting. And they said, which, which do you think is more representative? And the people would point to list B. You know, And then they would uncover it and say, well, list A was putts per round, and list B is this new thing, strokes gain putting. Right. They go, oh, wow, that, that sort of makes sense. So one of the, the key differences, I think, between uh, these new golf analytics and stats and other sports is the PGA Tour is putting it on their website, giving it to the writers and the broadcasters and the fans, and you can get it on their 
you know, PGA Tour app, and you can see it in real time as a tournament progresses, whereas other stats in, in baseball are sometimes relegated to some corner of the Internet with, you know, the real, you know, hardcore analytics types, that, but the casual fan in other sports often doesn't see it. But here, the casual fans are, are seeing it, and I think it's been adopted just because it makes so much sense. It does a better job of identifying the the best putters, and I think that's also why the players and coaches have really taken to it. Right. Well, there is this broadcasting feature that it seems like it ought not to be unique to golf, and that they, they can say, you know, there's a 54% chance that the player makes this putt, or at least that's the base rate from this position. Mm-hmm. And it reminds me of poker and the, the, the how much difference that the ability to do that has made in the popularity of that game on TV. Yeah. Is there why shouldn't we be able to do that in baseball? Or well, basketball? And, I, and I think sports do sort. There is heterogeneity across sports in terms of how open they are. The data, basketball, but with basketball example, could do this with the with the shot tracking, with the player tracking data. You could absolutely at every given position on the court say yeah, the I, probability of a you know made what? shot. Things are changing in baseball. I, last night I watched the game MLB Live, and Tampa Bay has this amazing center fielder, and they were reporting on his catch probability compared to. The league average, okay, yeah. okay. and that's all tech. That's because catch probability is but, something they're inventing based on that, what, angle of the ball. So it, and, it's going to be five years. They're going to have that catch probability in a box on the bottom right of the screen, and it's going to update dynamically right. as catch he's probability the ball. added. So you have punt, you have <laughs> putt, awesome. putt probability, yep. and, and, and we can track it back, right. and we can track it back to Mark Brody. Um, there you go. Mark, well, I think the advantage of this this new data in in all sports is not this proliferation of numbers, but it's the ability to provide insights and to tell a story in mm-hmm. a succinct way. Like you said, if you just have a little thing at the bottom of the screen that, that people understand and it's an important insight, it's so much better than just saying, you know, how many errors has this you know, center fielder had in the season? Like, right. Well, how much yeah. does that tell you? Nothing. So, Mark, you, you know, that's, that's, that has to be true, and yet many analysts get it. I might not have expected a finance professor from Columbia to be the one who had that philosophy. Where... <laughs> Where does that come from? How do, where does that insight come from, or where does that training or orientation come from? Because it really, I can imagine that is an important part of where of why your statistic, your initial statistic, strokes gained putting made a difference. Well, you know the the math behind uh, golf analytics and financial analytics is really very similar. A lot of the things that you guys talk about on 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 your show is um, how much better is a uh, a player than than the field, and you just you just mentioned like catch probability added. Well, just that way of of looking at things is a statistical concept. You want to control for all these other factors and sort of identify what are the what are the driving variables and look at correlation versus causation. All of these things are common across uh, finance, business analytics, and sports analytics in in general. So I think you know having this. Uh, operations research or applied math background and an interest in golf, well, there is just a crying need for uh, better uh, analytics because the, the traditional stats, putts per round, fairways hit, and greens in regulation were completely non-illuminating. They were either uh, uh, uninformative or completely mis- or misleading. misleading. Right. Mark, what, what's an example of a stat that you think is still not getting the appreciation that it ought to, or its counterpart, something that you think is still out there being used that's misleading in golf? Oh, well, they, they continue because it's, you know, you have to. You can't just sort of wholesale dump, dump all these old stats. And, and sometimes, right. you know, there, there is some value to that. But certainly, 
Um, greens and regulation is one. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. uh, driving accuracy is another. So greens and regulation is, is so bad because uh, the players that are leading in greens and regulation are not necessarily the best golfers in terms of driving or approach shots. And that's, that's a hard concept to get people around, but it has, has many flaws. One of the flaws is it's just zero one. You miss a green on the fringe, right. missed green. You miss a green in the water where you're going to get a penalty stroke. It's still just a missed green. So right. it wildly mismeasures all kinds of shots. It doesn't give you a bonus for hitting a, a par five in, in two. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, there's many reasons that these traditional stats are flawed. Mark, but, can you stay with that one for a second? Sure. And if you were, if, if, if CBS came to you and said, hey, give us a new stat for that, we'll put it on TV this weekend, what would you, what would you go with? Well, you know, last year the the PGA Tour, I worked with them for you know an entire year, and I had been publishing this for a few a few years, and it's in the Every Shot Counts book, which is strokes gained beyond putting. So we have mm-hmm. strokes gained off the tee, strokes gained approach shots, strokes gained around the green, mm-hmm. in addition to strokes gained uh, putting, and so now those are being adopted more and more, and I think. Uh, they're they're seeping into the broadcast and 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 many of them have like you know a little uh, one minute uh, spotlight where they'll say well why is Dustin Johnson doing so well and they'll look at a strokes gain breakdown and so I think this is happening more and I think it would be nice to have like you said like a, a running ticker at the bottom of the screen when a certain player is there and then you can see you know how well does he do in at this, this category kind of right. shot. Yeah. and and i guess a key innovation of the sort of strokes gained methodology is it does really kind of treat things more continuously right like That's a fringe a fringe uh, an approach shot that ends up on the fringe obviously is not as good as being on the green but is not like going to be binned into sort of a negative outcome exactly and this continuous is really what matters because if you want to explain um how much does Dustin Johnson's driving help him out? Well, if you look at his driving distance, it's very hard to translate that into strokes. If you look at his uh, fairways hit, it's right. very hard to translate that into strokes. Right. But but here's an example for I, Dustin Johnson, Roy McIlroy, and Bubba Watson are, are, are fairly uh, similar drivers of the ball. And um, I just happen to remember Bubba Watson's number. So here's a sort of a reasonably non-technical explanation for how strokes gain driving works for Bubba Watson. So Bubba averages 20 yards longer on every par 4 and par 5 tee shot, which is usually with a driver, but not always. So the question is, well, 20 yards longer, how, how much does that help him out? And the answer is about a tenth of a stroke per shot. So a tenth of a stroke per shot over, say, 14 shots in a round, those are tee shots on fours and fives, mm-hmm. he's now 1.4 strokes up on the field right. in that round. But he's a little bit wilder, and people say, yeah, but you know, he misses a ton more fairways. No, he misses on average one more fairway than PGA <laughs> Tour average. Okay, That costs him about three-tenths of a shot. Okay, So instead of this 1.4 from distance, you subtract the accuracy of 0.3, and he's now down to a gain of 1.1. Right. And so his strokes gained driving is about one shot, 1.1 shots per round, or about four, four and a half strokes per tournament. Okay. And, wow, that's pretty easy to understand. He starts the week more than four strokes ahead of the field because he drives it 
very long mm-hmm. and not much wilder. He's not wild. He's just a little bit less accurate than, than tour average. And that's easier to understand than saying, here's his driving distance or here's his fairway percentages, fairway percentages, you know, 62% instead of 67%. Who can possibly understand what that means? Right. No, that, that's, a, that's a great general rule for analysts to, to put it into the currency that the most... Yeah, like an effect size, currency. basically, is what well, we're always so looking for there. Mark, these these components, you're a good person to answer a question that people often debate. We often debate this on the show across sports, the role of momentum. Mm-hmm. If if we gave you the first two days stats on these things that, that you focus on, strokes gained putting, strokes gained off the tee, that kind of thing, and said, yeah, Bubba's even better this week than usual off the tee on fr- Thursday and Friday, or Dustin Johnson usually can't putt in majors, but he's gained all these strokes in the first two days. Would would you forecast that that would matter on the weekend? Is there momentum in 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 how people perform on those stats within a tournament? Like yeah, there is in judo, for example. Yeah, <laughs> I I I, th- I think there is there is momentum, but I I imagine it's smaller than than most people think. And one of the things that that bugs me about uh, some golf announcers is somebody shoots a you know sixty three which is obviously a fantastic score. And they'll, they'll follow that with a comment, well, that 63 is going to be so hard to follow up the next day. It's true. And <laughs> the reason is it's because it's so hard to shoot a 63 in the first yeah, place. Exactly. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but, but most people come from the viewpoint that if, if a player's average score is 70 and yesterday they shot a 63, that somehow their prediction for the next round ought to be maybe 65, mm-hmm. when in fact it should be closer to 68, say. Yeah, you're going to grant them something under 70. It's just going to be less, maybe a lot less than they think it's going to be. That's exactly. helpful. Okay. We're talking to Mark Brody. Mark is professor at the Columbia Business School. He also wrote the book on golf these days, author of Every Shot Counts and creator of the Strokes Gain Putting stat that you will see. if you, You'll see it on your TV and talked about if you watch the Masters this weekend. Mark, it seems to me one thing that's really changed since we've had you on the show, it may, maybe it's been two years, is that players are more interested than they used to be. So the, the broadcasters were interested and we were interested, but it sounds like players are really getting on board now. There was, a, there was an article in the New York Times, a big sports article in the New York Times just this week, maybe two days ago, and in that it says you're working with something like 30, 20, or 30 golfers, and you're not the only one. So can you talk about how that has evolved over the last couple of years and what the current state is, player interest in this stuff? Well, I think the, the interest uh, partly comes from players, partly from caddies, and partly from coaches. And so it, it, it varies greatly um, uh, where the interest lies. Players, of course, want to get an edge, and they want to they score better. Uh, but sometimes they want the information directly, and sometimes they want it funneled through a coach. Like there's, mm-hmm. there's, there's certainly some players, like you know, Dustin Johnson is an example of somebody that he would never want to see his strokes gained reports or other sort of analyses of of his game. But he would be perfectly happy if Claude Harmon or, um, um, or his. Uh, his uh, his son his his, his other coach would um, sorry, but but Butch Harmon or Claude Harmon in the third sorry about that yep, yep there's two coaches, he's perfectly happy if the information comes through them and they just tell him you know how he should practice what he should work on 
And so it has sort of an indirect benefit to somebody like, like Dustin Johnson. Mm-hmm. Whereas Jordan Spieth, um, I talked to Jordan Spieth's coach, Cameron McCormick. Cameron McCormick sits down with Jordan Spieth, and they go through the reports. But they also go through the report, and I think in a very intelligent way, which is instead of just let's, let's look at this information in terms of numbers and charts and, and recommendations, that uh, Cameron McCormick will ask Jordan Spieth, how would you assess you know, your, your season? Uh, where are your strengths and weaknesses? What do we need to work on? Or it could be the last half season or the last quarter of the season, whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so Jordan will give his, his reactions and then they'll go to the report and they'll make some comparisons and see sort of what makes sense to them and and what doesn't and then coming up come up with a a plan on how to allocate their their practice time where do they need to get better how are they going to do it not only how much time but of course are you going to make subtle changes in in the swing or you're just going to spend more time practicing on on this so there there's a lot of uh, advantage that many many players are are getting and it's and it's just great to see golf analytics having having an impact like that so mark what have you found challenging in in producing the right numbers for those guys we know that you're capable of doing far more sophisticated analytics than is needed in this setting my sense is that at least this first generation of interaction with players is pretty descriptive so I'm curious, with all the horsepower you bring to the problem, where do, what, do you, what challenge do you find, and what, what is hard for you in putting the right numbers and the right analysis in front of players and coaches and caddies? It's, it's when I, I, I like when, if, if you have a discussion, if they believe 80% of what you're saying and aren't sure about the other 20%. And the reason is if, if the discussion is, uh, 100% of information that they agree with, then I'm not adding any value. Oh, interesting. Okay. And if um, they disagree with everything, then they just don't believe. They just don't believe you. So you're, <laughs> you're sort of. Uh, <laughs> uh, that's interesting. Good, that's not a bad rule for the classroom. Yeah, for that, that's matter. a, that's a nice sweet spot. I like that. Yeah. So 80% is like okay. So now they have confidence that what you're telling them is resonating, and then the other 20%. Now you can say, okay. You're not sure about this. Let me give you some more information about why that is. And I want to explain it in two or three different ways in order to convince you of this of this piece that that you're not convinced about so far. So you can, for example, just put uh, a number in front of in front of a player and say, you know, this is your weakness. And they say, no, that's that's not right. You guys say, well, okay, well, just because the number <laughs> says something, yeah. that's not enough. It's got to be translated into uh, information that they can understand. So, for example, be, you might have to decompose yes. that into four or five different smaller elements. Exactly, that, and it okay. can be smaller, and it can be down to showing them particular shots. It can be showing them shot yeah. patterns. Okay. Uh, it can be showing them traditional stats with greens and regulation or proximity to the hole. And then explaining, you know, why this all adds up to something that they, you know, weren't a hundred percent behind initially. Right, right. Let me flip it around. From this is this is very intense interaction with the end users of these stats. How has that interaction changed the way you develop the stats? What have you learned and gone back and tweaked as a result of these kinds of interactions? Can you give us an example? Yeah. Well, everything is. Um, uh, possible to improve. So
So, so one thing, if, if you want to just focus on, on putting, strokes gain putting uh, is so much better than traditional stats because of the, uh, it takes into account the difficulty of the putt as represented by the distance to the hole. So um, if a player sinks a one-foot putt, that counts as one putt on the scorecard, but in strokes gain land, it gains you nothing because um, everybody can sink a one-footer. Right. Whereas if you sink a 30-foot putt, that also counts as one putt on the scorecard if you're counting putts, but you've gained one stroke on the field because sinking a 30-footer in one stroke is much better than sinking a one-footer from one stroke. So the main factor in the in the difficulty of the putt is the distance, and that gets you 90% of the way there, but there's another 10% which has to do with Slope is it of the a downhill green, putt, is it an uphill yeah. putt, yep. how fast is the green, and how steep is the slope. And if you put that in, into the, uh, to the equation, you not only get a more refined measure of, of putting, but you all co- also can, you have a better diagnostic tool, right. which is, well, are you better on downhill left or right putts than, than the field, or are you worse? Or If you're losing strokes on the greens and you're putting, do you need to putt better, uh, improve your lag putting, improve your short putting, improve your uphill right to left putts? What what exactly is it that that I should should focus my time on? So uh, there's ways to to you know dive deeper into all of these uh, mm-hmm. analytics. And mm-hmm. just like really briefly, as, as far as the you know looking at at putting, like presumably how you miss is also valuable right like uh oh, you you miss the putt by like you know leaving it like a, a foot short versus blowing it by by four feet i assume that that's part of the calculation as well oh absolutely so um i had an interesting uh conversation by email with pat goss and and, and luke donald where luke donald was the number one or number two putter in the world year after year and then in 2015, he sort of regressed a bit. In 2016, he regressed a bit more. So here's somebody that's now uh, ranked like 70th or, or 80th in strokes gain putting, where he used to be ranked one or two. And his feeling was that he was three-putting too much. And I said, no, you're not three-putting too much. You're not one-putting enough. And in fact, uh, you used to be uh, my model for somebody who is a fairly aggressive putter with good distance control that leaves very few makeable putts short, very few. Very few, I mean, uh, better than the field or better than better than tour average. And that's when he was uh, you know, putting in his prime just a few years back, but in the last couple years, he became more conservative. He was leaving more putts short than field average right so he went from this good distance control good aggression to i think worrying about three putting and when you're worried about a three putt what do you do well you don't um you don't want to roll the ball right. too far by the hole you lag yeah. it, right so you lag it and if you mm-hmm. lag it you end up leaving too many putts short if you leave too many putts short then you don't make enough and so his problem was not making enough one putts it wasn't that he was three putting too much and so he worked with his uh, his coach Pat Goss over over the winter and they did distance control putting drills where the goal was you put a fake hole on the green so the ball the goal is to roll the ball over the hole right. but since it's a fake hole 
you not only want to roll it over the hole, but you wanted to get it at least a foot or so beyond the hole. So success in this putting drill is not just rolling it over the hole, but getting it at least a foot or so by the hole into a little rectangle beyond. And there, there's other distance control drills beyond that, but you know, so that's what they practice. And this year, he's back into the top ten in strokes gained that's putting. That's fantastic. He's, he's gained like you know, 0.6 or 0.7 strokes per round with his putting over last year, uh, just by kind of returning to his old uh, aggressive self. Right. And, Mark, that's probably a tip that's not a bad one for your amateur golfers. I'm curious what tips you would give. We, we, had, a, we had a guest on a couple of weeks ago, maybe just last week, John Carter. He's, a, he's a down in Alabama, CEO of an outfit called NOAA, NOAA Analytics. Maybe they, they do basketball shooting technology. Really interesting organization. But one of the things he said on the show was most players need to put the ball a little deeper in the hole. Basically, instead of trying to drop it right in the middle, yep. basically drop it towards the back. And, and basically, shooters are the best shooters are biased a little bit back. And so, as a mm-hmm. tip for the amateur basketball shooter, it's like just shoot it a little, a little bit more towards the back of the rim. What tip would you give amateur golfers based on what you've seen on something that most are probably getting a little bit wrong and might lean another direction? Well, the the uh, the one that I would give is for for amateurs is don't leave short putts short. What counts as a short putt? I would say anything inside of 10 feet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there's um, sort of an optimal number of putts to leave short. And for putts inside of 10 feet, it's remarkably small, as you might imagine. So okay. at, at 10 feet, PGA Tour players leave 7% of their putts short of the hole. Okay. Amateurs leave about 16% of their putts short oh, of the wow. hole from okay. 10 feet. So part of that is certainly not having the same distance control, but most of it is because they're not aggressive enough. Mm-hmm. Part of it is also green reading. They're not quite sure how uphill or downhill a putt is. But definitely part of that is that amateur golfers golfers are not aggressive enough. And so here was sort of an eye-opening uh, stat or, or, or look, uh, look at this from, from me, which is if you take a look at one putt percentage, well, Amateurs are worse than pros. No, no surprise there. If you take a look at three putt percentage, amateurs are worse than pros. No, no surprise there. If you take a look at um, one more, one more stat, which is how far away from the hole are misses. Yeah. So for long putts like thirty, forty, fifty footers, well, amateurs misses are further away from the hole than pro misses. That makes sense. But on short putts, I let's see. say inside of 10 feet, yeah, amateur misses right. are closer to the hole than pros. And they shouldn't be. You don't want them to be. I, that that's makes right. sense. That's great. All right. So that's exactly analogous to putting it a little bit deeper into the a rim. A little bit yeah. deeper in the hole. That's great. Well, listen, Mark, really appreciate you being here. Thanks for taking the time. It's a big week for you, and uh, we, we always enjoy talking to you. So thanks for coming out. Great. Thanks for having me on. All right. That was Mark Brody, professor at the Columbia Business School, also author of a fantastic book called Every Shot Counts. The, he's the inventor of strokes gained putting and uh, a guest on the show i hope we'll talk to him again i'm sure we will we still have another quarter to go here on wharton moneyball come back and join us after the break welcome back welcome back to wharton moneyball two hours of sports analytics every wednesday morning eight to 10 Eastern. Some combination of us are here in the studio. This morning, it's 
Adi and Shane joining me, Cade Massey, hosting this morning. We have just rolled off the lines with Mark Brody, a uh, fantastic golf guest. He's kind of golf guest choice number one. Mm-hmm. Anybody, and certainly in golf analytics, having written the book that's kind of changing golf these days, Every Shot Counts, having invented a statistic for better golf viewing and eventually better golf playing, which is fantastic. Um, any reactions to that segment, fellas? Well, it was, it was, it, what was interesting to me is how much it, it's paralleling what's going on in all the other sports. In what way? I mean, it's breaking it down into a, a single stat that you can compare across that's simple. And, it's, and it tells you exactly what's happening in a statistic that makes sense. Well, one of the ways it's simple is that it's in the same unit as what you care about. That's right. Yeah. That's like, so runs and baseballs and, and, and I don't know what's the equivalent in football. Is there a number that, that translates a certain points. players? There's well, points, they, they pro- turn that probability that? of winning. Uh, peop, peop, so one, one thing that happens in football analytics, I'm not sure how much is bubbled up onto like the TV stage, but you can translate any position on the field or even game situation and position on the field into expected points yeah. from a drive. And and with that, you can say the change in expected points from that's any right. given play. So if, you, if you're first and 10 at your own 37, that's worth, you know, 2.3 points or something. So what's interesting and, in baseball is that they turn that runs into a wins. Yeah. And then, then they can convert. cross that over all sports. Yeah. Do, are they doing that? I mean, I was actually going to ask that question of Mark. What, can you turn in uh, – a, a stroke gained into a probability of winning yeah. the tournament. Well, you know that you can. So the the question is, do they do that? Do they do, do they do that behind the scenes? Would people be interested in that? It's kind of the, what's the optimal? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I unit? think in baseball, it's still depending on on the actual thing you're talking about. I mean, I think most people who watch baseball are fine with just keeping it on the run scale. I mean, we don't. I mean, especially yeah. in baseball, okay. where like it's. Tra- I mean, the translating to wins is just some like oh, like just divide by ten or whatever. You know, it's it's. it's I don't. I, I think most pe- aficionados or people watching golf are co- probably content with it staying on the strokes level, right? Because that's you know the units that they're kind of dealing with. If you had to pick one. I think, I think if you had to pick one, you'd do that. Well, that's, I mean, you know, pe- I mean, people know what like, a good score like, is, right? So, well, right, exactly. But you know, like tra- doing but, some but, kind but, of arbitra- relatively consider- arbitrary transformation into wins. It's not necessarily going well, cons- to. Well, consider the scoreboard. I mean, you're watching yeah. the game. You're paying attention to the yeah. scoreboard. So, so in some grand sense, you're caring about wins and losses. Yeah, but you're tracking the path strokes. towards that yeah. in terms of strokes. In baseball, Same thing you're tracking, in baseball, it you're tracking runs. runs. Yeah, yeah. In football, in, in points. But if yeah. I told you you were you were you can add this player adds a half a, a point per game. What does that mean half to you? Yeah, I, I agree that you want to have the context to interpret it. I'm not sure you want to actually place it for real-time consumption in that unit. So, yeah. but, it's a, but it's fair to say, look, okay, we just said, uh, we just talked about Bubba Watson having basically a one-stroke or 1.1 stroke gain on the field from driving alone yep. per round. So per tournament, it's like four. And you might say, okay, what does that do? You're a very reasonable question. What does that Great mean question. for his – how does that shift his probability of winning the Masters? What does a one stroke per round do? It's going to be a big shift. Yeah. Now, it must mean he's, he's losing strokes in other parts of his game because, you know, he's like, a, I don't know, a 15th favorite to win or something. But it's a, it's He probably a, loses a lot in putting. Yeah, he must lose a lot in putting or approach or around the green or whatever it might be. But um, sure, I think that's you, you always want to contextualize these things and say what does it what does it mean in terms of the likelihood of winning. So by the way, um, I mean, are y'all going to watch the tournament? Do you have do you, are you do you have rooting interest here? Are you interested in who the lead, who the top of the I'm odds gonna, well, charts I, I, are? I, I don't really have a strong uh, rooting interest, but yeah, I, I always watch the Masters. It's a fun tournament. Was it just it was it wasn't last year? Was it was it two years ago that Spieth melted down on twelve? That was last year, wasn't it? Was it just last yeah. year? 
My God, so we're, we're we're only a year removed from that. Yeah, he doesn't he hasn't really recovered. He's number two. So Dustin Johnson, we mentioned in the last segment, five to one. Mm-hmm. Jordan Spieth, thirteen to two, number two uh, on the list there between Dustin Johnson and Rory McIlroy. McIlroy coming in at eight to one. I'm good sure for a Spieth redemption. I, I've changed my mind about All having right. a rude interest. I think I, I would like I like Jordan Spieth. I like his style. And uh, and I, you I'll, spent last fall at uh, in Austin. You went yeah, to that's Texas, right. So he's, that's he's, right. He's so got, I'm going I'm going to cheer for the redemption tour. Redemption. Here. The redemption tour. Jordan Spieth. He's yeah. got to get through number twelve, man. Yeah. But and on Sunday, no less. He's on yeah. Sunday number twelve is yeah, going to be an right. interesting day for Jordan Spieth. Hopefully, he's in contention. Rory seems like I don't maybe it seems like he's been quiet lately. He's somehow still at the top of this odds chart. Jason Day had a great majors run. In Where's the last Sergio couple Garcia? Years. At? That's another one that I mean that guy getting uh, finally getting a major. I mean I used to I spent most of my life being really irritated by Sergio Garcia as um, most of us did. Oh I think God. I have not right? gotten over it. I have not. Yeah, and over I, it. so I mean he's he was kind of this like minor villain for years, but honestly that guy <laughs> played. Is this Talk what happens for so long? And we just get sympathetic yeah. over time? Yeah. Is it, is it just familiarity? I mean, it's like the Cubs. I mean, nobody, I mean, like, honestly, you know, everybody in America was cheering for the Cubs in the last World Series, right? I mean, outside of Cleveland. They were never the villains, though. They didn't well, never okay. blame their caddies for bad shots. They didn't whine. Right, all right. No, okay, We're talking fine. about the Cubs? You know, yeah. I want to... I mean, it, it, it was a weak analogy. I wanna, but okay, so, by the way, Sergio is about 11th in the world right now. Okay. And that's so about where his odds shot. are. He's about 10th or 11th. All right. 30, 30 to 1 is where 31. I, wanna, I wanted to ask you a question because golf has never... I've never been particularly captivated by golf. And oh, the question I have for you guys... So, so, Shane, you watch it and enjoy it. Do you mm-hmm. play golf? Or I do. You do play golf. And I know... Kay, I, was you hearing, golf. I was hearing golf familiarity in your... Uh, in I, I didn't know play golf. I don't play it well. well uh, <laughs> you know, I'm probably like... <laughs> but is that, a, is know, that a sport that I feel... I feel high like 90s, golf low is a, 100s in a I feel run. like golf is a sport that is highly correlated. Your, your likelihood of enjoying watching it is highly correlated with your, your time you spend playing it. You think more so than other more sports? More so than other sports. I mean, I think particularly football. It's not just very, a, very not just a lower it. base rate? No, I, and I think that if you try to adjust for all the things you're supposed to adjust for. Why would uh, that be, I wonder? And I, I wonder whether the appreciation of the team? sport, I think the appreciation of the sport is, is I'm, really I'm, fostered by playing it. I'm going for more boring answers. Team versus individual? It's easier to get pulled into team-based stuff. I'm not sure, but I've never played it. I've never played a round of golf. You're a baseball guy. Baseball guys are usually decent golfers. But they could be, but I'm not. But I just never have. So that mm-hmm. so I watch the golf when it's particularly interesting. But and that's the basis uh, for your resentment against golf. No resentment. No resentment. Just, just, just. <laughs> no, I mean this is an interesting question. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about myself. I mean, you right, it. right. I mean, You're like, Whoa. you know, I, um, <laughs> the only sport that I watch that I've never played is hockey. And I quite like watching hockey. But, but no, but hockey, I can understand that. It has, has attributes that are quite... Because it's so dynamic. Dynamic. Inter- okay. I mean, golf is a slow sport. Let's be, let's be honest, folks. <laughs> Says the oh, my goodness, guy. dude. I mean, you slam <laughs> soccer, and you slam golf, and you sl- and then you, 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 you talk about the elegance of baseball. Well, I'm saying the, that if you play oh golf, goodness, there's an dude. appreciation to it. It's probably quite beautiful. But when you aren't a player, you don't, you don't appreciate it. I, I'm, I'm the first to admit, if you've never... It, grown up with baseball, either playing it or watching it, it would look like paint drying. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. But you aren't willing to sort of like take that analogy to something like soccer. 
No, I you, would, you consider soccer a boring sport, if, yes or no? If you are not a player of soccer, it is a deathly boring sport. Unless I disagree. Learn, I am not a player of soccer, well, you, you, and I find it not boring. Well, you've, been, you've, you've engaged the sport long enough to appreciate its, its, its richness, but if you have not done so, it's not... It's well, not. right, but why wouldn't that same logic apply to baseball? That, like, oh, because you, uh, you're saying, like, it looks like paint drying. I mean, all you have to do is take a little bit of time to engage it. Speaking of paint drying, this conversation... Yeah, can we, can we shift to NCAA so you might watch the UNC uh, UNC Gonzaga game? Part of it, yeah. So I'll sleep for a minute of it, turned it on yeah. again, and it was the same thing as it was before. Well, the first half yeah, was good. It was yeah. good. Yeah. I enjoyed the first yeah. half, and then it kind of kind of got turned. I mean, last fast. year's was like raise the bar for yeah, it's for, impossible. For everything. To it's, it's, that. it's, that's right. So I was kind of sad for Gonzaga. It's hard not mm-hmm. to pull for the underdogs, right? First time there. This was this was yeah. UNC's eleventh trip to the finals. Yeah, and it was Gonzaga's first one. No, that's right. I mean, you but know, if you like redemption stories, apparently like you like Jordan Spieth fan over here. You like redemption stories. They I got do. they got to come back and win after having dropped that dramatic game last year. Yeah, that's right. Okay, what about um, what you mentioned Romo before the I before did. the show? What, what about you, that news? That's shocking, really interesting. Actually. Yeah, I mean, I, I think he's. St- I think it's still, he's still a great quarterback. I I, I I think it's still fifty percent, at least fifty percent likely he's on the field come the start of the season. Okay. If that happens, what's the probability that he breaks another friggin' rib or collarbone? Or Very something? high. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, no, I mean, I mean, if I was Romo, like transferring my psychology to Romo, I'm like, take the cushy TV <laughs> job. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Obviously, but this—he's a competitor, right? I mean, he's gonna try. He, he his whole career has been putting his apparently body made of glass at risk, <laughs> right? Because he really wants to how, play football, and how, some team is going to go, like whether it's Houston. Or or whatever you think, some team's going to make a run at him. Yeah, really. Even after he's uh, apparently agreed, he's to probably do the, the best quarterback available right what, now. What, what, what are the Jets yeah. doing? I mean, they need a quarterback. For example, the Jets would be a good <laughs> uh-huh. one. The uh-huh. Jets would be a good one. Houston would be a good one. I mean, we can spend the last like whatever minutes like just listing teams that have bad quarterbacks that would be improved by Romo. Denver. Oh my goodness. So if he doesn't play anymore, is his career unique in kind of? Frustratingly close to being great, but never quite getting there. Or, no, like, I think that's actually pretty common. You think it's pretty common because as a because I grew up on the Cowboys and I've got lots of friends yeah. and family that are Cowboys fans, and so maybe I'm a little too close to it. Mm-hmm. But it's always felt like I mean, some people hate on Roma. And yeah. These people just I don't know what they're looking at. But he he is he seems to have been his talent seems to have been wasted in a very bad era of Dallas Cowboy football in a way that is surely not unique. But he has to be in a in a category of people whose careers kind of got in terms of championships and even playoff wins. Yeah, were really spoiled because I think he was a pretty special quarterback. Yeah, I mean Dan Marino was a pretty special quarterback that was on a lot of bad teams and never won a championship. Okay, as Dan, well. Dan Fouts as well. Yeah. as long as we're working Dan's back yeah. in, in the eighties. That's right. Um, but no one didn't. No, everybody gave Dan Marino credit for being an amazing quarterback. Well, but but, but, but I'm saying I mean, and, and Romo certainly I don't think is at that kind of no. level, but. I, you know, I I do think Romo, there there are a myriad of examples of quarterbacks that we recognize as being highly above average, um, but you know through the circumstances of their team or whatever, never really kind of well, you know get, get, contend for championships. Let me ask another question. So Tony Romo is out because he was replaced by the rookie Dak Prescott. Is he for real? I mean, how often do rookies start with a explosion first season and then the next season? They're back regressed down to the average or low that average. Happens, but I mean, I mean, you know, I mean, what, I, do, you, what do you think? I mean, this I mean, is, I think, do you think that was the right decision? Well, no, it, yes. Um, I mean, yes, it is because Dak Prescott, I think, he had an entire season of sustained success, and I think has demonstrated. I, I, 
I think has given evidence that he is an above average quarterback. Yeah. Right. Um, and he's also young and not made of glass. An important question in, for this particular situation is: Is there something about the quarterback's game that the defenses will catch up to? Mm-hmm. Because that's what yep. happens in the NFL. It usually happens within a season. I mean, that's how quickly that's how sophisticated NFL teams are. That a player will have an advantage. A new player might have an advantage for a while. That will disappear when defenses adjust. The best of the quarterbacks aren't adjust aren't fully adjustable essentially so yeah does prescott have something that has been an advantage because he was new that won't persist yeah and I'm, I'm skeptical because i think the full season would have been enough time to see some of that yeah and i mean i, I also I, I point to the fact that we're obviously only talking about a couple of games but his performance in the playoffs was also i mean i mean yeah. clearly he demonstrated the ability to perform under in a high pressure situation against good teams do you think it matters that he had as many starts and he and basically he had demonstrated that kind of leadership and pressure in college? This is here. Mm. This is thing that yeah. in, the, in the data. In the data, say the more starts the the college quarterback has, the more likely he is to succeed. <laughs> but I'm not sure how diagnostic that That's is. That's confounded by yeah. quality. Yeah. yeah. So, so is the question is what you know? So, there, for example, one of the top quarterback prospects this year, Mitch Trubisky, coming out of UNC only kind of came on the scene in the last year. So they got less of a record, fewer mm-hmm. games started. Mm-hmm. Um, very different from Prescott, who yeah. was a multi-year starter. So do, what's, what's your sense? And it's just a sense because you're not looking at the data. What's your sense on how diagnostic that's liable to be? I, I'm, I'm talking about it because you just yeah. gave Prescott yeah, credit no, for I some mean, things that people would say they, they, that's they right. could have seen that's it right. in college. I mean, I think probably, you know, I mean, games, as Audie hinted at, I think games started in college is definitely informative on, on, on success in the NFL. Uh, but I think 90% of that is just, you know, whatever aptitude yeah. at quarterbacking you demonstrate in college is more likely to lead to you starting, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. There's probably there, there, there's probably some amount, like, say, like 10% of the effect or something like that is due to somehow that leadership role in college. Well, let's flip it around. Why do you think Prescott went under the radar when he came out, because he could, he, I mean, they, these guys, they took him in. How late did they draft? Late, him? and that's the what, sixth that, round. That's what bothers me. Sixth? Wow, it, that's it what bothers me be because I would take. If I'm trying to predict future performance, I still want to lean heavily on you, that estimate. So you still you do not want to let go of that prior. I don't not as rapidly, and and I I don't. I mean I'm not I don't have in my fingertips yeah. historical information about first year phenoms. Well, all, and I, yeah. I'd love to do a count, and I think that that would be interesting. And I'm we're talking about Tony Romo, and now, I, Adi, let me push you a little bit on that. You'd rather have them be first year phenoms than not. Of course, of course, but I, if I'm going to try to predict your future. The second year, I'd like to t- take a look at what happened in the second year, given all the future phenoms, yeah. and did the second year's performance, was the forecast of that in any way impacted by the prior that you got through the draft and through yeah, the yeah, information? Yeah. So you're saying, don't go, don't throw out the information we had this time last year, which That's was right. pretty pessimistic on Dak Prescott. Yeah. And we can, it's not hard to come up with lots of examples of quarterbacks who actually did have better first years than seconds, better first and seconds mm-hmm. than thirds and fourths. I mean, where's Cam Newton now? now? What's the current reading on Cam Newton? What Brady happened? struggled in his second year as well, uh, relatively. Oh, boy. Who's Brady? I don't, I don't know. Relatively. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but did he, he, did he go out as in a Was his first year terrific? Yeah, he won the Super Bowl. In his very first year. <laughs> and he, he happened to not win the Super here's, Bowl in his second here's, year. Here's one. And then won the Super Bowl in his third year. Here's, and then won the Super Bowl in his fourth year. I could go on. Here's one factor. We're forever giving quarterbacks. You have a crush. 
we're forever giving quarterbacks too much credit yeah. and blame for what happens on the field. They're surrounded by you know ten That's other guys right. when they're there and eleven guys when they're not there, and we yet we put it so much on quarterbacks. I mean, uh, you know, I'll go back to you're, you're talking Pats. I'll talk Longhorns. Yeah, Colt McCoy had a much better freshman season than he did sophomore season. If I were to just give you those two facts, what would you say? Well, they probably surrounded him with a better team. Yeah, basically, yeah. he's like he and, had a great offensive line. He had this stellar offensive line as and, a freshman. And, and, and that, I, it's good for that reminder that you know Dak Prescott's success is in large, you know, is in part great because Dallas of team. having a but great I think, team. But I think I think you him. also have been in some sense influenced by Brady a little too much in this conversation. <laughs> because you've seen him. He started like Brady. Did Brady yeah. He had 15 years. Yeah. Of, still has them. And I, I think if you really have to look at the, the whole picture... Oh, yeah, no. I, I, and I, and I, I, I think it doesn't look so rosy. No, that's right. No, and I, and I agree that, like, you know, bringing up Brady... In the context of kind of late-round, surprising kind of success yeah. from late-round picks, you do want to take a more universal view because you... He's the Brady, rare, Brady's rare the exception, not the rule. I agree, yeah. I agree. That so, said, the draft is not, you know, you don't want to also overtrust draft decision, you know, people's draft decisions as being like really strong information as well, right? Because people make draft mistakes all the time. Yeah, no, it's, it's noisy. With regards to it's, quarterbacks. It's, it's, it's very noisy. It's noisy, but I, I mean, I like Adi's pushing us, I mean, to, yeah. be, to be Bayesian, which we always want to be. And it's like, you know, we say the same thing when we filled out Final Four brackets. Right. Even though it's March and we've been playing basketball since October, you should still use the information you had mm-hmm. or beliefs you had about a team in October yep. in forecasting what they're going to do and, in March. And, and it turns right. out. And in this context, how unlikely is it that we're going to be sitting around in December thinking about, boy, they let Romo go? Wow. I mean, that's a possibility, right? No. I, oh yeah. Maybe. The, guy, the guy's, I just, the guy's near the end of his career, and he's right, extremely he really injured. Right. Right. I mean, so yeah, they're not I mean, going to regret this no matter no, what. Okay. I, 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 Romo would have probably, so are, they would have struggled with the decision even if Dak Prescott had so struggled So are there any other season. mid-career quarterbacks kind of wandering around looking for a job? Doesn't happen very often. Not good ones. They, what happened to Colin Kaepernick? Did he get not, a job? Like I, like I said, not good ones. But he's no, he, <laughs> he's not he, a good one. He's well, not. A good he's, one. He was. No, what, he wasn't. He was a good example of a guy who starts out right. big, and then he's a guy who defenses learn how Griffin to play. Robert Griffin III was also, also a good he quarterback was great. He for off a season and a half or whatever. Great and then, examples. Great examples. Yeah. You know, a lot of the examples we've come up with have been on quarterbacks who had more threats with their leg. They, they yeah. threatened with their leg more than the typical NBA. Scra- the more sort of scrambling style of quarterbacking is is, is hard to defend when, when mm-hmm. it's on, but it's also those quarterbacks tend to be more injury prone. Mm-hmm. I mean, to a certain extent, Michael, the amount of sustained success and long career that Michael Vick had, I don't think he we we give, give him credit for that. Credit yeah. for how long he stuck around with that kind of style of right. play. Well, and it reminds he was me, a fantastic quarterback. Well, you know, there are quarterbacks. Russell Wilson is a yep. mobile quarterback, but he's a and he, so he's not quite the threat. He's, yeah, but he's, but he also plays very smart. So he, yep. he doesn't. You don't hit him very often. I think his whole first year, he took like one shot. Mm-hmm. And That's right. So there's 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 wisdom in how to be that kind of quarterback while still. Maintaining some longevity. You know, we, we just talked about the NFL for 15 minutes. It's just amazing. Just want to point right? that out. Well, that, you could, right, you could frame it that way, or you frame it as we only talked about it for 15 minutes. Yeah. That's I mean, right. Shane and I could talk, well, maybe not just the NFL, well, because we just ran our first Massey Peabody preseason for the college season. Oh. We've never what's done going it. On? We've never what's done going it, on? We've never done it four months in advance, and we have numbers. We have numbers in April. It was like Christmas. Yeah. It was like Christmas running these preseason numbers. Who's I can number tell one? you. Well, <laughs> I the, can guess. we have two, two teams got a prior. head and shoulders above in terms of probability of making it to the championship. Well, I can guess one of them. Yeah. I assume one of them's Alabama. You can guess the other one, too. Ohio State. Yeah. So clear yeah. favorites going into the season, Alabama and Ohio State. All right, guys. Guys, that has been 
another Wharton Moneyball, two hours of sports analytics. Thoroughly enjoyed my time sitting here with you, my buddies, Adi Weiner, Shane Jensen. Many thanks to Danielle Bruno on the soundboard, Matt Johnson, our producer, and to the listeners out there. Come back and join us next week. We'll be here. We'll be here live 8 to 10 between now and then. Enjoy your sports. Enjoy your sports.